Uh, you might want to remain standing. I don't normally have you stand while I read, but this is very short. Psalm 68, verses 19 through 21, and you can read from what's in your bulletin. Blessed be the Lord, who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation, Selah. Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is light to our feet. It is light to guide us in a dark world. We thank you and pray that you would illumine our minds and guide us by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray and give you thanks. Amen. 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 You may be seated. When you select a text, like we've used the New King James now forever, and when you select a text to preach from, and then you look at other versions just out of curiosity, and you find there to be a substantive difference, it's kind of annoying. And so uh, there is a little bit of a difference in here. I I wouldn't really call it substantive, uh, but in that it was not in the main topic, the main theme of the message, I was really thankful that it isn't something that I really have to get too bogged down in. But we begin at verse 19 in our text, blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. Now, how common do you think, and sometimes I'll do this, I'll have this phrase, blessed be the Lord, and I think, okay, I love computers, and here I am, I can type this into a search bar, select exact phrase, and then find out how many times it comes up in like a thousand different versions of the Bible. It's just amazing. And so how many times do you think, blessed be the Lord, comes up in the Bible? Who says over 100? Who says over 500? That's a lot. In the New King James, I was surprised to see that it came up only 27 times. I know, I was shocked. And so, and I double-checked. I said, is this the whole Bible that it's searching? Because sometimes, you know, you, you think you clicked one thing and you clicked another. But no, 27 times. Now, of course, bless the Lord is also another common phrase that you might think, and it's very closely associated with this, but they're pretty different. Blessed be the Lord. What is it that is being said there? Blessed be the Lord. It's statement of fact. Bless the Lord is a command. Bless the Lord tells us what to do. Blessed be the Lord is just telling us the way it is. So see, when we choose to bless the Lord in obedience to Scripture, we're merely doing what is right for us to do because blessed be the Lord. He is blessed, whether we choose to bless him or not. So we start out this text with, blessed be the Lord. And then we have this reason associated with it, or at least an outworking of his blessedness is then shared with us, who daily loads us with benefits. Now, this is where the uh, difference of opinion is, though, amongst interpreters. Because if you read the NIV, it reads this way. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens. And so it seems very different. It does. And yet when you study it out, and and, uh, a favorite site of mine to study is Bible.org. It has so much on pretty much every verse. And it has all these tools you have access to. And uh, a fellow there, in sympathy with my thoughts at that moment, said, now don't be so shocked with this because it's really uh, easy to see both potential meanings here. And and actually, after you've been reading and studying the Bible for a while, I I did take Greek for two semesters. That was forever ago. I've forgotten nearly all of it. But I never took Hebrew, and so I've always felt a little inadequate in the Hebrew. Um, But I know it's hard 
because I remember interacting with seminary students way back when I first became a Christian and then soon after became a Reformed Christian. And uh, these guys struggled with the Hebrew, more so than with the Greek. And uh, there are just less opportunities to see it in action, I guess, I would say. So now none of this is really controversial for us, though, because the Bible in many places has the thoughts that the different interpreters have on this particular text. The New King James, again, is who daily loads us with benefits. Who daily loads us with benefits. See, we're the ones walking away from God with this heavy load. But it's a heavy load of blessings. Whereas in the NIV, who daily bears our burdens. So see, here, we, we don't have these blessings that are burdening us as we walk away. We have God walking away with these negative burdens. These burdens that are no longer on us as this heavy pack. So see, the concepts are still quite similar. We still walk away happy. We walk away thankful. And so I don't really think it's controversial to me. I don't care. And this isn't the uh, primary purpose of the text anyway. The, The title of the message is God, Guardian of Life. But I just didn't want to go rushing past this because if you really want to study the Bible, you have to pay attention to these different things. And I'm not going to dig into a great deal as to why these differ, what the meanings are. That isn't the purpose of today, but I just wanted to acknowledge that it's there. And see, in the original Hebrew, the phrase, with benefits, who who daily loads us with benefits, it's not there. The words with benefits is not there in the original Hebrew. It's implied. And then you think, well, why then is it added in? Isn't this a, you know, a translation that says it's word for word? Yes. But really, I didn't understand uh, the Bible, and, and, and especially Greek in any other language, until you understand English. So see, when I started studying Greek, the first thing I found was that I didn't know English. Here I was in a, in a Greek class, and this Greek teacher, I'm asking these newbie questions, like, why are these words spelled the same if they have different meanings? That's an idiotic question, isn't it? I mean... In English, you have all kinds of words that are spelled the same and have different meanings. The same words spelled the same way could have multiple meanings. And I was so naive at the study of English and at just the study of language that I was thinking these things and asking these things, interacting with my fellow students. And then I thought, wow, this is going to be really hard. I have to allow context to determine what's being said. And two, when we write, we do presume things. We presume words being there at times. We would like to think that that wasn't done in the Bible, but see, the Bible is written for us, written by humans for us. Yes, we know God superintended, but yet he used these people. So these people and their idiosyncrasies of how they write and how they had written, God used. It's just amazing. I mean, it's amazing that that the Bible can be inerrant, and yet that it can be written by humans, superintended by God. So, blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. And so, from the New King James, we're walking away, loaded down with what God has given us, and so we ought to be thankful. That's what comes out of that. And then we go on to a a kind of a different topic. Now this, the God of our salvation, would more you'd think be more consistent with the NIV interpretation of who daily bears our burdens. Because see, when God is walking away with our burdens, what does that leave you then? It leaves you free from those burdens. And obviously the burdens in question would be sin. The burden of sin is heavy. The God of our salvation. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. The God of our salvation. Now, there are two phrases here, the last line of verse 19 and the first line of verse 20 that seem very uh, similar to one another. The God of our salvation, our God is the God of salvation. So see, until you start trying to take those sentences apart, you might think they say much the same thing. They do say much the same thing. But they also say something very unique, very different from one another. And so let's parse them. The God of our salvation, the God of our salvation. So the possessiveness here has to do with our salvation, our being saved. He is the God of our salvation. So this hour indicates the possessiveness 
of our salvation. And then the very next line says, our God is the God of salvation. So see, the possessiveness there is where? Our God. Our God. That's our God. So see, God owns us. But in a very real sense, we own God. He's our God. He's made himself our God. Our indicates possession. God wants us to proclaim us as his. He wants us to consider him ours, and we do. Now, God owns us in this sense, too, and not just as chattel property. We know that's true. God owns everything. It's his creation. It's his. But God owns us also in this sense that he chooses not to disown us, right? So God owns you. But what that means, though, is that he's claimed you. And so he's not disowning you. To disown you would be to discard you. So see, God owns you, and you own God. And I, by own here, I mean take pride in. God takes pride in us. We are his workmanship. God wants us to recognize him for who and what he is. The catechism question about God is simple. It says, what is God? I remember when I first started learning the catechism forever ago, I was somewhat offended by that question. What is God? It made God seem like a thing. What is God? And see, that kind of suits our culture in many ways. People think of God as a thing. They don't think of him, of him as a person like we do. They don't think of him as being in relation with him. They just think of him as something to talk about, something to criticize the concept of. And so that's how I perceived that question when it first struck me. When I'm first reading through the Shorter Catechism and it says, what is God? I thought, how offensive. But yet, you have to ask yourself then, immediately after you have that kind of instinctive reaction, well, wait a minute. You know, who wrote this catechism? These were holy men that wrote this catechism. So therefore, they were not being dismissive of God's personhood. And so what is it that they were wanting to get across? Well, you, you know, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, goodness, and truth. So see, God, that's his substance. It's not his identity. It's not his personhood. When we say, who is God, that's different. But when we say, what is God, we're differentiating him from a chair, from a human. We're differentiating his essence from other essences. And so we say, God is a spirit. God is spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. So it's not wrong then to ask that question, what is God? But it doesn't prevent us from asking the question, who is God? And that is something that you tend to fall into a trap in thinking. If you're asking this, then you can't mean that. Mutual exclusivity it leads to lots of arguments. So when we ask a question, it doesn't mean we, that we can't ask a different question, wanting a different answer. But so when we say, what is God? We are acknowledging that God is different in essence than us. So our God is the God of salvation. Let's watch, walk through each word, our so that's our possessing God, our. We, he God, God wants us to own him in this. Our God, God wants us to recognize him for who he is, a spirit. And yet, it need not have us deny his personhood. Our God is. Is is the verb of being, the timeless verb of being, regardless of whatever President Clinton says. I'm telling you, it's the verb of timeless being. So when God announced himself to be I am, and his name Yahweh is derived from the sound of that I am, that is persistent, timeless being. Only God can truly say that. Only God truly has eternal, existent being. All of us have derived being. 
we are is, but we were not is, and we may not always be is if God has, has it out for us. But so see, God is. God always is. God always was. He always will be. God is. Our God is the. This is the important one in this sentence. God is the God of salvation. It does not say God is a God of salvation. God is the God of salvation. And then again, our God is the God of salvation. Salvation requires a God. That's why we have a lot of problems in our society, because many people choose not to believe that salvation requires a God, and so they deify the state. The state now is to be our savior. The state is to save us, and the state can't save us. It's impossible to save the souls of people. The state can't do it. The state, the state might be able to save you in this temporal fashion on this earth, but Frankly, it's more likely that the state will kill you than save you from death. Our God is the God of salvation. And so salvation could be temporal. It could be eternal. The Sadducees, at the time of Christ, did not believe in a spirit or a soul. They did not believe in a hereafter, a resurrection. You find it hard to believe that, but when you read the Old Testament... It's not nearly as clear to us the nature of our essence as it was made with Christ revealing so much. You know that statement, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so the New Testament revealed so much truth about the old that was already there and yet made it so much more clear. And so salvation, and I believe it's here too, we'll see it weave in and out of temporal and eternal. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So these phrases confirm two statements. These phrases we talked about, the God of our salvation, our God is the God of salvation. They prove two things. God alone saves us. And God alone saves anyone. When you young people who may get into debates on the Bible about the meaning of certain texts, and not just young people, everybody. Um, but for me, it happened when I was younger, when, I, when this was all new, the Reformed faith was new. And you read these universalistic passages, and you think, well, this is interesting. What does this mean? You know, God is the Savior of all men. What does it mean when the Bible says God is the Savior of all men? Some people stop reading there because that's where they want to stop reading. And they say, see, all people are saved. There is no hell. That's just something to tell little children to keep them in line. God is the Savior of all men. And God will do it through whatever means, whatever earthly means he sees fit. Sure, you know, they might come to God through, uh, through to heaven and eternal bliss through uh, seeking it in Hinduism, seeking nothingness through Hinduism, nirvana. They might find it through Shintoism. They might find it through Buddhism. They can find it many ways. But see, that's to stop. And, and so many supposed Christians are coming to that conclusion because they really don't want to study the rest of the Bible. God is a savior of all men. And what's the next phrase? Especially of those who believe. Yes, God is the savior of all men, but he does not save all men. There is only one Savior, God our Lord. Yet, he will not save all. Because those who come to him must come to him in faith. And then they will be saved, not until. And even if there is a human agent involved in your salvation, in our salvation, there are people involved in this. I, a, a person I'll mention later on is uh, Louis Zamperini. And he was the main character from that movie and book, Unbroken, that World War II prisoner, the navigator in that plane that went down and was lost at sea for a long time. He came to the Lord at a Billy Graham crusade in 1949. When he got back after the war, he was lost. His marriage broke down. He was a drunk. And yet he went to a Billy Graham crusade and came home and he was a different man for the rest of his life. He just died a few years ago. He lived forever as a, a Christian and yet it didn't come out in the movie at all. But see, even if Billy Graham was 
involved in your conversion, God superintended it. God is the Savior of all men. He uses human instruments to knit this together, but yet God is the Savior. So now, that was all kind of preliminary, and I want to get to the heart of this, God guardian of life. So we go into the second sentence in verse 20. Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. And to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Now, I don't know about you, but it's, become, it's been hard for me to read it that way, to read it properly like it says in the Bible, because I kept wanting to read it like this, and to God the Lord, and to God the Lord belong, escapes, uh, uh, belong escape from death, and to God the Lord belongs escape from death, and to God the Lord belongs escape from death. That's how I was reading it. That's how it was in my head, but it's not what it says. And to God the Lord belong escapes from death. It's plural. The escapes are plural. To God the Lord belong escapes from death. When you read it the way I was reading it just in my head, and to God the, the Lord belongs escape from death, it's theoretical. It's didactic. The Bible is teaching us something, that to God belongs escape from death. Yes, we all know that. It's only God that will save. It's only God that can save from eternal death. But that's not what it says. To God the Lord belong escapes from death. Now, when you read something puzzling in Scripture, the first thing you should do is first, does it, is the same thing stated anywhere else in Scripture? Go find it, read it, study it. What does it mean? Is it different than this? But of course, is context. You have to read the context in which this statement occurs. So, Let's look at the verse prior to what we've read at, starting at 19. In verse 18, this is what we read. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. This should sound familiar to you. This was a prophecy that Paul refers to in Ephesians as having been fulfilled. And so let's go there. I want to read to you from Ephesians 4. Let's read Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 10. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, we know, and Phil has uh, preached on this, this is Christ victorious entering into Hades and pulling out all of the faithful that have died in faith, leaving behind those that died in unbelief. So, again, in context, we just had David write this, concerning the prophecy of Christ going into Hades and extracting the faithful. Then we read this, blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Our God is the God of salvation and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. So now, what you can now think a possible meaning of this escapes from death is referring to the fact that these people in Hades, they've escaped the second death. To God... The Lord belong escapes from death. So in other words, this, this plurality of escapes is referring to the fact that there are many people being taken with Christ up into heaven. They've escaped the second death. So see, that's one possible scenario. But let's examine the context immediately after what I just read. So, blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. Okay, my theory is in trouble. Unless I want to assert that these people that remain behind in Hades can yet still commit trespasses. I don't think so. 
But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. What does verse 21 start with? The word, but. Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in trespasses. I think the deaths that are being escaped from here, the escapes from death, are here and now. They're on this earth. They're not after death, but prior to a potential second death. They are prior to real death here on this earth, death of the flesh. To God the Lord belong escapes from death. But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. What is he still going on after? What is this trespasser still doing? He's still sinning. Why is he still sinning? Why is there a, a, an expectation that he should stop sinning? Because he has been spared. He has escaped death. And yet he is not turning to the Lord in faith. He's not recognizing that which uh, he's been saved from. That there was some blessing that he's been given. He's not acknowledging that, I think. That's what I think is happening here. You might have a different opinion when you study this, but yet I just, I just can't see with the way it ends, the hairy scalp of one who still goes on in his trespasses, that person's alive. And that person's rejecting something. He's rejecting God's grace, God's kindness to him in sparing him from death. So, the message that I have for you springs from this understanding of this text. This is a temporal escape from earthly death. It's not a permanent escape from spiritual death, such as those that are being rescued by Christ are experiencing. So, what are escapes from death? That's the question then. What are these escapes from death? I think so many of us have experienced them. I don't know if this is the case, but Friday night after the email had gone out about the, uh, the text and the title, uh, I was asked at a uh, fireworks display uh, by Gil um, what the text and title is, and I mentioned it. And then later that evening, and I didn't want to preach it. You know, that's always the temptation. I don't want to talk about it. You know, you can ask me, fine, but I'm not going to talk to you about it. I was even a little concerned when you started integrating into your prayer of adoration. I was like, oh, where's Gil going with this? But, you know, because you just don't want to potentially steal the thunder. I remember once Brad got up to do a sermon, and I happened to pick his text of his sermon for my communion meditation. I had no idea. He's like sitting in his seat just sinking. Brad Collins, you guys might not know him. It was a while ago. Okay. But see, what I was asked, we're sitting there, it's starting to get dark, waiting for the fireworks, and suddenly Megan shouted out, Rod, have you ever saved your wife's life? And I'm, and I'm like, where did this come from? And so I said that I rub her feet most every night, so I don't know if that qualifies. <laughs> but here, what it was happening is over in the women's section of our little group that night, they were talking about this stuff. And apparently, both Donna and Megan were saved by their husbands from farm tractors, farm tractor lawn tractors. So you women stay away from tractors, apparently. <laughs> but I was thinking, okay, well, are they reflecting on the fact that the title is God Guardian of Life? I don't know. Was it? No? Just coincidence. Okay. So I just thought, wow, what is this? Are they aware of what I'm going to preach about? But what's funny is this. Escapes from death are quite common. How many people here have a story of an escape from death? Raise your hand. How many here know someone personally who has a story of an escape from death that you've heard and you like to hear about? See, it's not that uncommon for us to have these stories of escapes from death. And we as believers know this is God's grace. God saved us. Even often as an unbeliever, when we experience that escape from death, we're thinking, wow, you know, God preserved us to then bring us into salvation, bring us into his kingdom. 
So see, I want to talk a little bit about these close calls. So first off, there are these classes of folks that tend to experience close calls. Um, I would think that a major uh, category here are soldiers. Soldiers in battle experience close calls. And that's why newbies die. Newbies don't realize there's a lot of lead flying up there when they first go into a battle zone. And that's why some of the more seasoned soldiers are often reluctant to befriend the newbies because they think, oh, you newbies, you know, there's just a significant number of you are just going to get knocked out. Um, I've been reading military history since I was 12 or 13, and so I, I love military history, and yet you read about a lot of battles. You read about, about people here, boom, there's somebody dead right next to you. A guy you just said a word to is now dead. You glance over, and he's lying there with a bullet in his head. It's just such a bizarre world you're living in as a soldier, especially when it gets intense and people are falling left and right, and, and you can become then callous to death. You can grow weary of living yourself when you're having to deal with the loss of so many friends. This happens with the elderly just through attrition. The elderly lose a lot of friends, and it gets lonelier and lonelier the longer you live. But when you're in the battlefield, you see all these people dying. All of us probably know the story of Colonel Washington and the jacket. The Indians kept shooting at him and shooting at him. And after the battle, there were bullets all through his jacket. Eventually, the Indian chief that was uh, leading told his men, don't shoot at him. <laughs> I mean, it's like this guy is, is protected. And so he just thought they were wasting their lead to continue to fire at him. So see, there are close calls in battle all over the place. And I've read so many, I, I really don't want to share it, but there are lots of books even dedicated to close calls. Another class of people that experience close calls routinely are adventurers. They want to experience close calls. These extreme sports, uh, the people that climb Mount Everest and go off to the Antarctic and to the Arctic, uh, mountain climbers and hikers. Um, and there have been so many movies, like I, I read uh, Into Thin Air by Krakauer about the Everest expedition. And, uh, you know, several people died because the storm came in early. You have these extreme skiers, these apparently wealthy people that are dropped out of helicopters and then ski down mountains, um, just risking life and limb. I mean, skiing is dangerous as it is, and here you are dropped into a place where there aren't even any known ski slopes. You just are taking your chances. Uh, motorcyclists, every, and then there are us, right? There are these people, and you think, okay, well, that makes sense. These people are experiencing close calls, but why are we? Why do so many people raise their hand? And to me, it just shows that living is dangerous. None of us get out of this alive, do we? I have shared so many from the pulpit over the years. Uh, let me list a few. Uh, Sidney Poitier. He's still alive now that I know of. He's fairly elderly. But he spoke of way back in the 60s when he was just becoming a popular actor. And he and his family and a movie producer friend and his family went to this tropical island. And he and his buddy got caught in a riptide. And it's pulling them under. And uh, then he starts, you know, praying to Jesus. You know, Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. He gets, he and his producer, but Jewish producer, but he gets, I don't think he was calling out Jesus' name, but maybe Sydney's worked for both of them. They both get tossed up on shore. But then he said within an hour, they're just having drinks and joking and laughing about what they just experienced. It did not result in him coming to faith. Another man, a very funny man by the name of Beck Weathers, I shared with you, uh, he was a doctor from Texas who was in that uh, 1996 crew that lost several people. He was left for dead twice. They thought he was dead. He's just laying there like a lump in the snow. And yet twice he got up and, and, and wandered off, and finally he found his way back to a tent. I mean, he's lucky they didn't shoot him, thinking he was a dead zombie coming to eat them or something. But this guy was left for dead twice. And uh, yet later, he also did not come to Christ. And he was repeatedly asked to the point where he got annoyed with people asking him, uh, what he credited his life for, if he didn't believe that there was a higher power, he denied all that. Then there's Louis Samperini, you know, what we'd shared. Uh, then Ernest Shackleton with the Endeavor. All those men he left behind on Elephant Island for four and a half months. 
so near death, eating whale blubber for month after month after month, just incredible. And all 28 of the men from the Endeavor made it, made it home alive. I have read a couple of books, I think three books, about the World Trade Center towers coming down. I know I shared from the pulpit the story of a man who was in the first tower hit, the North Tower, and the North Tower was hit higher than the South Tower, and so it stood longer. And all these people in the South Tower were told, it's safe, your tower wasn't hit, and so people didn't evacuate. But in the North Tower, people were evacuating because it had been hit first, and uh, yet the people above where the plane hit, it was hard for them to get out. I know of only one man that made it out from that portion, and that's because he knew the stairs. And he intentionally, as soon as the plane hit, he started going down the stairs. He had to climb down 110 flights of stairs, but he made it out alive. When I was a young man in the Bay Area, I was going to school at Santa Cruz University, and a fellow student of mine, um, I had gone over to his house for some reason. I think I was going to help him move something, if I recall. And I went to their house, and I was parked in a cul-de-sac. I pull into the cul-de-sac, and when we were ready to leave, he came out and got in his truck, and he had this big monster truck with big wheels and jacked up. And I'm waiting for him by myself, and he starts backing out of the driveway. And just then I noticed this small child in a tricycle sitting right in the middle of the cul-de-sac. And he comes wheeling that truck back, and he stopped about that far from that child's head. And the child is just sitting there, you know, looking at the truck come at him. And I thought to myself, wow, I just about saw that child die, and only I know it. My buddy just, and I'm, I have to follow him, so I race after him. I tell him after I get there, you know, you almost ran over a kid in your cul-de-sac. You better watch that in the future. But he didn't know. He didn't care. Um, Life is so precious. Life is just hanging by a thread. And so uh, it's just, uh, and, and I've heard some stories here. I know uh, there's a story of a young man running through a fog in Ethiopia that thankfully fell down in the dark fog because then moments later the fog lifted and there he saw he would have plunged over a cliff. Uh, there is a story that you might want to ask uh, Grandma Kaiser about a flight she missed in Michigan. Uh, so many people have these close call stories. Um, I don't know, if, if you're on Facebook, you've seen some. About two or three years ago, I remember seeing this compilation of close calls with, involving pedestrians, if you've seen this. There are all these traffic cameras now at all these intersections, and, and you see a crash, and a car starts rolling, and there's a pedestrian there, and then the car rolls past, and then you still see the pedestrian. It's like, how did that occur? Is that person uh, spiritual, and the car rolled right through their body? I don't know. But some of these uh, videos that you see are just so shocking. Uh, and yet, thankfully, you're mostly seeing the good videos where people survived these. Um, but right now on YouTube and Facebook, there are compilations of all these things. Pedestrians just walking out in an intersection. They've got the little white man. And he's telling them, it's safe. Come on out. Come on out and play. And then, boom, some car races past at 50 miles an hour, blows this pedestrian back, but then they just continue walking on their way. It's becoming more common for us to see these because there are cameras everywhere, and they're capturing this. So do these people realize, I believe they do, how close they came to death, but do they really appreciate the fact? Do they reflect on the fact all of us that have had close calls, do we reflect on the fact that God blessed us with life? Has it made us more careful? I, I like to quote this proverb. I don't know where I heard it forever ago, but uh, a wise man learns from his mistakes. A wiser man learns from the mistakes of others. So when I see these videos and I see this happening, I think, wow, it's just life is so precious. It can end in a heartbeat. We are easily lulled into a sense of complacency because life is so prolific. God has made this earth to be a prolific place for life. Billions of people. Yet, let that not lull you into complacency because in the billions of the people that exist, there's only one you. There's only one you. 
It's amazing to think that these people are all special to God. These people were all created by God. He knows them. They might not all come to him in faith. That's true. Yet he created them. He values life far more than we do. We take life for granted way too much. Yet as Christians, we ought not. I, I become, early on uh, as a Christian, I struggled in the pro-life movement. I was very upset by what was happening. I was so passionate about it, I found that I had to back off a little bit. I would have gone off and become like a Paul Hill, you know, just wanting to kill these abortionists. And yet that's not right. That's not God's way. And yet I'd backed off for a while, and now I find these Saturday morning protests that we do to be so helpful to my soul. You know, we're out there, and we're praying, and we're singing, and we're uh, presenting a witness to the community, to these cars that are driving past us and driving back through the back door of the, of the uh, Planned Parenthood to get their abortions. We are out there as a witness to rebuke them for this that they're doing in secret. So it's important that we stand for life. Isaiah said this of unbelievers, and I believe it's so common. Come, one says, I will bring wine, and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. That describes day-to-day -day life for most people, even Christians. I think we just grow desensitized to the preciousness of life, to the thanks that we should be giving to God for the fact that we are alive. Jesus, when he was asked about the uh, people that the Galileans that uh, Pilate had executed, said this in response, those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus seems to be associating sin with death, yet he's telling them, don't think that all these people that die like this, that you're better than them because you're not. It was uh, sad to read about this uh, uh, character from Star Trek, Chekhov, dying the other day, 27 years old. Uh, he parked his Jeep, got out to check his mail, maybe, I don't know. It's like midnight, he was going to run off to meet friends. When he didn't show up, they contacted authorities. They came by and found that his car had pinned him against a brick mailbox and killed him. You know, life is so precious. He didn't know that when he was running out to meet his friends that his life was going to end. But so see, Jesus in this instance saw a teaching opportunity. His disciples, these people that asked this question, are wanting to associate ultimate cause with why this or that happened. And, and Jesus is just essentially politely rebuking them, saying, you can't know. You cannot know. Our days are all numbered. God knows, but we don't. And we can't presume to know. We can't presume in other people's lives to know why this, why that. We just hug on them when something happens. So now in verse 21, but God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. The message to the unbeliever is obviously, obviously from context here, a wake-up call. Any near-death experience, any close call, is supposed to awaken people to a sense of their mortality, their frailty. Have I lived life as I ought? That's what we ought to ask with close calls, and especially, especially the unbeliever. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so we emphasize that with all people we talk to, amongst ourselves as well as the unbelievers we come into contact with. We will all stand before God one day and give an account for what we've done on this earth. Are we living wisely? And so as an unbeliever, the message is clear. God is saying, get right with me before you die. And God is so patient. I was listening, I've, I've listened to uh, First and Second Kings in recent weeks, and I am so amazed when I see God's grace extended to Ahab. Let me read this. This is from 1 Kings chapter 21. 
Now, Elijah had just come and said this to Ahab. Let me read that first. Ahab says, have you found me, my enemy? But Elijah answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. So that is what Elijah said to Ahab. And then this is what happened. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So it was when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. Ahab did not come to faith, but Ahab respected the power of God. He was afraid of God, but not afraid to the point I think he feared, frankly, his wife Jezebel more. And so he did not submit to God's authority. He was submitting to his wife's authority instead. And yet God had mercy on him. He did not take his life in this regard. He allowed him to go on to live because he had repented in sackcloth and demonstrated his recognition of God's power and his right, frankly, to do what he'd done. What had just occurred is he had just executed Naboth and stole his vineyard. So now that's the lesson for the unbeliever. Repent and turn to God and be saved. Now the lesson for us, that's who's here, life is precious and God has blessed us wondrously. We were out in California. We went to the Santa Cruz uh, Presbytery. And just after it ended, we went down uh, south of Carmel onto PCH. And we're there with uh, Rachel and her husband. And we're, we're jumping off the uh, PCH and walking along these trails, beautiful trails, beautiful plants, lovely fragrances. Uh, you're overlooking the ocean by about 80, 90 feet on these cliffs. And Tabitha and I are just taking all these pictures. Uh, I'm walking behind Tabitha, and, and oh, there's a flower. Oh, there's another flower. I mean, it was just uh, beautiful. It, it's just you go to California, you see like a thousand different plants on this trip, and apparently we needed to take a picture of every one because each one was just incredibly beautiful. And even if we'd taken one of its, of its friend over here, oh, this is when it looks a little bit different. So we were taking all these pictures, and it was just hard not to. We were just reveling in the beauty of that area. It's just so beautiful, and we were very thankful. Uh, there is someone that you probably know on Facebook by the name of Tierney. Uh, many of you know her, and I love her posts. Uh, she, uh, she loves clouds, and so uh, just a few weeks ago she posted one, and it said, God has good ideas for ceilings. Beautiful pictures. And, and Hannah, too, has been posting of clouds now. Uh, she'll post, clouds make things better. She'll post, the one was out in the desert out in California, smashed cars and pretty clouds. I, took, I stopped on, at this little spot out in the middle of the desert, and these cars were smashed like six inches flat. And so uh, Hannah posted, smashed cars and pretty clouds. Um, it's just we must live thankful lives. And this is it. God wants us to enjoy life. Uh, Going to church, being a Christian, is not about fussy moralisms. If you think that, you're wrong, and you're living a sad life. Uh, what, what Gary quoted earlier about the law of God, uh, it's wonderful. You know, God means every aspect of his word for our joy, for our fulfillment. To God, the Lord, belongs escape from death. 
Psalm 75, 1 says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your wondrous works. Declare that your name is near. We must not love the creation more than God, and I don't think we do, but we must be thankful for what God has done for us. Let's reflect on that. Let's meditate on that. And so when you, if you have close calls yourselves, if you have conversations with others, it's a favorite topic of conversation with those that have had close calls, especially recently. But when you hear such a story, especially coming from an unbeliever, ask them, press them if it has changed them. If they were ready in that instant to meet their maker, they might deny the reality of what you're saying, but they will one day stand before God, and those words you spoke will be in their ears. And as a believer, embrace life. Live life. Be thankful to God for the wonders of this world. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. You are uh, kind to us, and you own these escapes from death. You are the guardian of life. Uh, you allow people to die when it is their time to die. And yet so often, Lord, you protect them. You save them. You preserve them to live on. And you are uh, so merciful with people, even wicked sinners who are still obstinate in their sin. But if only they will express humility, if only they will express an acknowledgement of who you are and what you're doing. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you are our God, you know us, you know our frames, you know our strengths and our weaknesses, and we pray that we would live for you, that we would not live for ourselves, that we would not seek to uh, focus all of our energies on accumulation of stuff, but we pray, Lord, have us to uh, reflect on how best to use stuff, including the minutes that we have each day, uh, how best to glorify you, how best to serve others, how best to demonstrate the preciousness of this life that we live. We thank you now and ask you to uh, be with us, to have your Holy Spirit guide us in the week ahead. May we cast all of our cares upon you and give you a thanks for all that you have done. In Christ's name we pray, amen.